When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now it's time to talk about bad prosecutors and phony forensics. It's not just the police, it's also the prosecutors and their reliance on forensics who create much of the injustice in the American justice system. Despite the portrayal on TV of forensic analysts on the show CSI as crime-solving seekers of truth, prominent scientists and criminal justice experts have questioned whether suspects really can be identified by forensic techniques like matching bite marks, hairs, shoe prints, tire tracks, even fingerprints. According to the Innocence Project, faulty forensic science is a factor in nearly 50% of wrongful convictions. For comment, we turn to me and Christ and Tim Reckworth. They're the co-authors of a major piece of reporting in the new issue of The Nation. It's called The Crisis in American Forensics. Me and Chris is writer in residence in biological sciences at Columbia University. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the L.A. Times, the London Review of Books, Scientific American, and Science. Me and Chris, welcome. Hi, John. Thank you for having us. And her co-author is Tim Reckworth. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Slate, Foreign Policy, and Scientific American. He received his Ph.D. in neuroscience from Columbia University, where he also taught biology, chemistry, and science writing. Tim Reckworth, welcome. Thanks, John, for having me on the show. First question. You guys say DNA testing is science, and forensics is, quote, barely science at all. What makes them different? That's a great question. DNA is based on scientific principles that were fully tested in labs before they made it into the criminal justice system. The principles underlying it, such as the variation in genetic frequencies throughout the population, are well characterized, and things such as how often a mistake can be made can be quantified and expressed in court. Some of the other methods that you referred to, such as bite marks, fingerprints, are based on the subjective judgment of trained examiners. As such, they have not had the same level of objective validation as something like DNA has. The only problem that I know of with DNA is what we saw in the OJ trial, the chain of custody defense attorneys have gone after the question of the handling of the DNA evidence. But once that is resolved, you're satisfied that DNA evidence does have a fully scientific basis. Is that right? Yes, John. If done correctly, uh, as you refer to, if there are handling issues or issues in the crime lab, that can introduce errors. But if done correctly, DNA analysis is accurate. And I should also add that that includes it being taken from a high-quality sample 
and a single source of DNA. There are other ways in which law enforcement uses DNA analysis that can be less reliable. But the important point is that this can be tested. It typically has been tested, and you can express very clearly how accurate it is in court. In your article in The Nation, you give an example of the abuse of forensics by prosecutors. It's a case in Grand Junction, Colorado, involving uh, a man convicted of first-degree murder in a series of bombings. Tell us briefly about that Colorado bombing case. In the early 90s in Grand Junction, Colorado, there was a series of pipe bombs that really rocked the town. It, it was at the time about 30,000 people and, you know, having bombs go off and it killed two people and injured one. And so having this series of bombs go off really scared people. They brought in the FBI, uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, and they sort of, you know, came up with this guy, Jim Genrick. So the case against him is really interesting because there was a lot of circumstantial evidence that could be read as potentially not damning, but sort of disturbing. So he had a history of mental illness. ATF agents found a series of disturbing handwritten notes in his boarding house where he was sort of expressing frustration about women not liking him and threatening violence against women. But they didn't ever find things like gunpowder. There were no reliable witnesses. There was no confession. So the only physical evidence that ever linked him to these bombs was testimony by a, an FBI forensic examiner who said he had matched tools found in Jimmy's boarding house with marks that were found on recovered bomb fragments from the bomb site. So scratches and striations that could have been made by a tool like pliers, you know, tightening the cap on a pipe bomb. Let's talk specifically about the tool mark analysis. What were the expert claims and, and what do you think about the evidence in that case? The expert in this case, who was actually at the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, he matched four pieces of evidence to Mr. Genrick's tools. And these are microscopic striations that if you zoom in, you can line them up and come to the conclusion that those tools, to the exclusion of any others, must have made those marks. While there are some uses for this sort of evidence, you could, for example, rule out that it was perhaps a large set of pliers versus a small set of pliers. It's very difficult to make a claim that this was Mr. Genrick's tool to the exclusion of all others in the world. And one reason is that, A, he didn't test every other tool in the world to see if it could have left those same marks, and B, there hasn't been any research to show how likely is it that two tools could, by coincidence, leave the same mark. And this is what's so dangerous about this type of evidence, is it's very visually compelling. It looks like they're a match, but what you don't know is what you don't know. You have no idea if there are other tools that could have, by coincidence, made those matches. And the tools that Mr. Genrick used were extremely common. They're not exotic bomb-making tools. These are pliers, $3 wire strippers. In fact, his lawyer, the, uh, this trial lawyer at the time that we spoke to, said she owned a pair. One of his friends that we spoke to when we visited Grand Junction said, I owned like three pairs. Hmm. So the basic premise is questionable. And then there's the bite marks, uh, let's call it scientific claims about 
being able to identify unique bite marks. You talk about the Journal of Forensic Sciences, where there was an article that claimed a coincidental match of bite marks would occur in less than one quadrillion cases. That's that's totally convincing. What did you find? Well, it is convincing. And we went and looked at that paper, and I've looked at a lot of scientific papers. We both have. We're both science writers. And what that paper was a theoretical calculation based off of an arbitrary number of positions that teeth could take in someone's mouth, and then calculating as if they could all move, uh, be in each position independently, and simply multiplying those numbers together. That is that problem is uh, highly reduced. It's highly unrealistic. And that's the sort of evidence that they're bringing in to support their points. Not the real, the real question that matters in court, which is how often does a bite mark examiner make a mistake? And now when someone actually tested them, it seems that on average they make mistakes about one in six times. So one in six times that they're in court testifying that it's one in a million, one in a billion, whatever they say, they're actually wrong one out of six times. And that's a huge problem in the criminal justice system. And I would add to that, it's a problem because it's so convincing to juries. You know, if you have an expert who gets up there and says, uh, you know, no one in our field makes any mistakes or we only make mistakes one in 10 quadrillion times. Therefore, basically what I'm telling you is a proven scientific fact and it must be correct. The jury takes that very, very seriously and that testimony can be damning. It would be different if an expert got up and said, well, given what we know about bite marks or given what we know about tool marks, um, you know, our examiners make mistakes about one in a hundred times. I think that this is a match, but just so you know, we do make mistakes one in a hundred times. The jury might take that evidence into consideration very differently. Um, and this is part of why prosecutors really don't want to give up this tool. You know, having an expert who can walk into a courtroom and say with utter scientific certainty, you know, with all the authority of science behind them, that this is a match is very, very convincing to juries. So they've been wrong about bite marks matching about one in six times. You found an astounding error rate for hair examiners. How often do hair examiners uh, come up with a false match of two samples of hair? Well, if you listen to testimony in court, you'd find that it was about one in 10 million. But when it was actually tested, it was closer to one in nine. Wow. In 2009, you report the National Academy of Sciences performed the most sweeping independent survey of the state of forensic science to date. Uh, Tell us what they concluded. The NAS really looked broadly at the forensic fields, and they discovered, as they say, a field in disarray. There were no standards that were set up across different labs, There were practices that were kind of all over the place that were, nothing was in place to make sure that bias wasn't creeping into the system. Some labs were not accredited, some were accredited, those accreditation procedures were different across different labs and in different states. There was not a lot of 
foundational similarity across the forensic disciplines, even just across different crime labs. But what they also found that was sort of more alarming was that there was really no scientific support for some of the pattern matching disciplines. So those are things like bite marks, hair analysis, you know, matching shoe prints, you know, matching tool marks. And examiners have been testifying with this kind of overblown certainty in courts for decades. But NAS looked around and said, but there's no studies that say that you can do what you say you can do. And that was a huge problem. I know that prosecutors are eager to convict, but not all judges have that same eagerness. And surely defense attorneys have tried to convince judges and appeals judges and maybe even the Supreme Court that there's a problem with forensic evidence. What about the the critics of forensics? John, really glad that you brought up judges because this isn't a problem that's limited to prosecutors uh, or the forensics community. Judges have played a huge role in keeping uh, unproven science in court. And here's the basic way that it works. Prosecutors uh, or defense, anybody really can introduce a piece of scientific evidence in front of a judge. If it's new, they'll have to have a special hearing where they evaluate whether it meets certain criteria. Those criteria vary from state to state, but they are along the lines of, is it accepted by the relevant scientific community? And more recently, can it make testable claims and provide error rates? That was a more recent ruling in the Supreme Court in 1993. What happens is that judges are not scientists. They don't go back to the original papers and read them and consult with scientists and come up with a seasoned opinion of whether something has proven itself to be scientifically valid. What they typically do instead is cite precedent. And precedent simply means rulings that judges have made in the past. So if, for example, bite marks is a great example, bite marks got into the courts out of a single case in 1974 when a man was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. And that gets, and then other courts will cite that case to say, let's let bite marks in. Well, this original case never presented evidence. They trusted the expertise of the authorities. They trusted the methodology because they used 3D imaging. They had a lot of terminology. And now you have this situation where people get wrongfully convicted using bite marks and exonerated by DNA later. And yet those legal rulings, even when they resulted in an exoneration, still stand as precedent and can still be cited by other judges. So in this way, legal rulings substitute for scientific proof. And so even though there's been measures to try to keep pseudoscience or unproven science out of courts, in fact, we sort of created the perfect conditions to keep them in. Okay, the judges haven't been sufficiently aware of the problems here, but what about the attorneys general? I assume Jeff Sessions probably is not very interested in the challenges to forensic evidence, but what about Obama's attorney generals? What about Loretta Lynch? That's a good question. Jeff Sessions has a proven record of opposing these kinds of reforms, and it's easy to make him a scapegoat for this, but Loretta Lynch opposed a lot of reform recommendations as well. I think this speaks to the larger issue that a culture of prosecution is not consistent with the culture of science. They have a strong incentive 
not to scale back on these techniques that are so useful in court and not uh, revisit wrongful convictions. And so you see resistance in almost any prosecutorial agency. I would add to that prosecutors, whether they're in the Obama administration or the Trump administration, have a vested interest in resisting reform because it could weaken one of the most powerful tools. It could threaten cases currently underway. It could call past convictions into question. And it really creates, there's a, a serious conflict of interest in having prosecutors involved at any level in reform because prosecutors and forensic examiners work very closely together. You know, law enforcement is this large group of people who are collecting evidence and analyzing it and taking it to court. And so forensic examiners and prosecutors and investigators really feel like they're all on the same team. Um, and so when we talk about reform, the idea that the DOJ now under Trump has really taken all of, science, all of forensic science reform and put it under the auspices of the DOJ is incredibly problematic. They should not be the ones who are in charge of overseeing reform, and in fact, they shouldn't be in charge of oversight of the forensic sciences at all. So who should be in charge of the oversight of reform? One of the first recommendations of the NAS report was that there should be an independent body. The National Institute of Forensic Sciences would be able to make recommendations about reform, would be able to give out money for research, and would really create a culture of science where there has not been one thus far. I want to end up by going back to the Colorado bombers conviction. This guy has been in prison for a quarter of a century, but now his case is being appealed by the Innocence Project. Tell us how the appeal is going. These big national reports that came out, there was the National Academy of Sciences in 2009, and then the PCAS report that came out in 2016. These have really provided tools for lawyers that want to go back and challenge rulings where they think that, you know, someone has been convicted and should not have been convicted. If you don't have a reason to to go back and, you know, appeal someone's case, you, you can't go back and get it out of the court. So what the Innocence Project is doing is saying that there has been a change in the scientific consensus around toolmark analysis, specifically in this case. Because these big national reports have come out saying this community is in disarray, there is no scientific foundation for these methods, the testimony that experts are giving in court seems to be based more on subjective experience than on science, the Innocence Project is sort of taking those reports and going back to the appeals court in Colorado and saying this man was convicted based on forensic evidence that now no longer looks like science. Um, and he deserves to have his case heard again. Me and Chris and Tim Reckworth are co-authors of a major piece of reporting and analysis in the new issue of The Nation. It's the cover story. It fills the entire body of the magazine. It's called The Crisis in American Forensics. You can read it online at thenation.com starting Thursday. Me and Tim, thanks for this stunning work. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having us on the show, John. Thank you very much.
You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.